We are still in chapter 6, Mishnah number 6. This is one of the most famous Mishnahs in the whole book of Perkei Avos, of chapters of the fathers, because it's talking about the 48 ways to wisdom. If you want wisdom, if you want Torah, there are 48 different methods of acquisition of Torah, and we are up to method number five, which is be'ema, meaning with awe. If you want to receive Torah, if you want to be a receptacle of Torah, if you want to prime yourself into being someone who's able to absorb Torah, you have to have awe, or awe is one of the 48 ways. Now, you will notice that the next way, so way number six, is beira, which means with fear, with reverence. And the word awe and fear are adjacent to each other, and it sounds very similar. What is the difference between awe and fear? What is the difference between method number five and method number six? So the commentaries debate it. We are going to go with the opinion that way number five is awe of a Torah sage, and way number six is fear of God. So the present one that we're going to do right now is awe, which we're going to understand it because it's a debate in the commentaries. We're going to understand it as referring to awe of a Torah sage. Now, the first question we have to ask is, why must we have awe? Why must we have reverence for a Torah teacher? You're not worried, I assure you. If you've ever had the great privilege of meeting a true Torah sage, they won't harm a fly. And therefore, we don't have to be dreadful, fearful that they're going to attack us, that they're going to castigate us, that they're going to belittle us, that they're going to harm us in any way. What does it mean to have awe of a Torah sage? So the commentaries explain that a true Torah sage is akin to an angel. In fact, the verse at the very end of scripture in Malachi, it talks about a Torah sage who is akin to an angel and people are requesting Torah from his mouth. And the Talmud in the book of Hadidah tells us, if your sage, if your teacher is similar to an angel of God, then you should request Torah from their mouth. And if your teacher is not akin to an angel of God, then you should not request Torah from their mouth. The basic requirement, I say, just tell us, to be a teacher of Torah is to be indistinguishable from an angel. If someone's not an angel, then they're not a candidate, or not like an angel, then they're not a candidate to be able to teach Torah. People should not request Torah from their mouth. And therefore, if we're going to have a discussion about a Torah sage that we're going to go study by, go study under, definitionally, they're going to be akin to an angel. And therefore, the awe being described here is not fear of harm, but awe and dread and reverence of being in the presence of a true sage, of being in the presence of a true sage who is like an angel. And when you're around someone who's so big, 
so developed, a titan, a giant of a person, that is going to be an experience that's going to give you a sense of awe and a sense of dread. You know, if we look at the teachers of yore, Moshe, imagine what it was like to be in the presence of Moshe. This is someone that we we witnessed. We witnessed him orchestrate all the miracles and all the plagues in Egypt. We witnessed him by the, by the splitting of the sea. We overheard God talking to him at Mount Sinai. Imagine what that was like to be in his presence. But that really continued throughout the centuries. You, know, you look at the descriptions of the sages in the Talmud and in the Mishnah, these were veritable angels. The Talmud has all kinds of crazy stories about the power of these sages. So, for example, there are many instances documented in our literature of great sages looking at someone and turning them into a pile of bones, which means that they had powers that are not ordinarily accorded to ordinary humans. The Talmud tells us in the, in the book of Sukkah, on page 28, that the great Hillel had 80 primary students, and the most minor, the most junior of those 80 students was none other than Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the greatest sage of his era. And he was the most minor of the students, and his accolades include complete, comprehensive, total knowledge of all wisdom, of all Torah wisdom, everything, everything, absolutely everything, and included in that all the hidden Torah as well. The Talmud goes as far as to say that when the birds were chirping, he was able to interpret what they were saying. And he was the most junior of the 80 students of Hillel. Well, if he was the most junior of the 80 students of Hillel, what was left for the more senior students? So the Talmud tells us that the greatest student of Hillel was Yonasan ben Uziel. We have his commentary, his translation really, but it's really a commentary on the Torah, known as the Targum Yonasan. And the Talmud describes that when he would study Torah, there was an aura surrounding him. There was a penumbra around him. The angels would hover around him to listen to what he was saying. And any bird that flew into his airspace would immediately get incinerated. That was the degree of holiness that was present by this sage of the of the Mishnahic era. When Rabbi Yochum Zakkai's two students were studying Torah, again, this is all documented in our literature, the Talmud tells us that when Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua were studying Torah, and they were weaving together Scripture in all its facets together, the angels were swirling about them, creating a fire. These people routinely were able to revive the dead. They had that power. 
they would have visitations from Elijah, Elijah the prophet, on a regular basis. And again, these descriptions are widespread in our literature. The Amoraim, the authors of the Talmud, they can look at you and know exactly where your soul came from. You know, back to Moshe, we just had in the Parsha a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned this on my Parsha podcast a few weeks ago, when, when Moshe and Aaron and the heads of the tribes at the beginning of the book of Numbers, when they were counting all the Jews, the verse says they counted kol zachar legul gelosam, which means every male according to their skull. A gulgolus is a skull. In fact, the word gilgul means to roll. You've heard the term heads will roll. You know, the head, I guess, is kind of spherical. If you want to roll it, it's probably not a good idea. But uh, that's perhaps where the etymology of that word comes from. Every male ligul gilosum. So the sages of the Kabbalistic origin tell us that Moshe was not just looking at the individuals and counting the individuals, he was also foreseeing into the future all the future reincarnations of these souls. Because the word Gilgul means to roll, but it also means to be reincarnated. And Moshe, when he was counting the 600,000 Jews in front of him, he was counting them not just seeing them the way they are currently constructed, but he was able to forecast into the future all the future iterations of that soul. So to me, this made me think, the Kabbalists tell us that all the souls that we have today are recycled. Have you heard that before? All the souls we have today are recycled. It's not the first go-around for any of us. That's what the Kabbalists tell us. Accordingly, if Moshe was forecasting or was foreseeing and was counting and was evaluating call zahar legul gelosam, every male according to their gilgul, it's quite likely that he was able to see us because we are those gilgals, we are those reincarnations, which is an amazing thing because we don't think of ourselves as, as having like a personal touch point with Moshe. Of course, in the Jewish nation, you know, we got Torah, and of course that all stems from Moshe at Sinai. But as an individual, according to this Kabbalistic interpretation, Moshe was able to foresee all future iterations of every soul. And if we are one of those iterations of those souls... Well, then Moshe saw us and evaluated us and counted us and enumerated us and we were part of his purview. But again, I'm trying to stress that these people were people and maybe they started off life as being ordinary people like us. Maybe they had outsized abilities, but they became angels. They transcended and became angelic and capable of immense power, and to be in their presence would be one, would be an experience that would evoke awe and dread. 
The Talmud tells us that when Rabban Gamliel was deposed, and we've talked about the story a few times, he was the Nasi, he was the president of the Sanhedrin, and for a variety of reasons, he was he was a little domineering, and he had his reasons to do that, but ultimately the sages decided to depose him and to appoint someone else in his stead. Rabbi Elazar ben who was only 18. We remember that story, right? But the Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos that there was a fundamental attitude shift that happened in the academy when one administration was outgoing, the administration of Rabbi Gamliel was outgoing, and the new administration of Rabbi Lazar Azaria came in. And that is that previously they only allowed students whose innards matched the way they presented themselves externally, only a student whose tocho was kibaro, whose inside was like their outside, that was the only candidate to be part of the academy. Under Rabbi Gamliel's watch, many students were rejected. They were not allowed to participate in the academy because their innards were not like the external presentation of self. When the next administration was inaugurated, they got rid of the guards at the door and they allowed all the students to come join and that increased the ranks of the academy either by 400 benches or by 700 benches in the words of the Talmud. Evidently, the sages of that time can look at a person and evaluate and determine whether or not their innards matched the way they externally portray themselves. We think of our own inner world as being something that's it's really hidden. You know, we could have thoughts in our hearts. We could have beliefs in our hearts that no one knows about. Because that's internal. When you are around a sage that has transitioned into an angel, they could see right through you. <laughs> and they could evaluate you if your innards are matching the way you are externally portraying yourself. The Arizal would look at someone's forehead and know the origin of their soul and know what sins they needed to rectify. And he only lived... 500 years ago. But my grandfather, blessed memory, who I met, I was 18 when he passed. I was with him in the hospital room two days before he passed. He told a story about a great sage that he met that I will now share with you. When he was in Poland, in the great Mir Yeshiva, he decided to visit a different yeshiva in a place called Kamenitz. Kamenitz. Now, this yeshiva in Kamenitz was famous for its Rosh Yeshiva, which means the head of the yeshiva, whose name was Rabbi Baruch Ber, Rabbi Baruch Ber Leibowitz. And if you look at pictures of Rabbi Baruch Ber, you can find some pictures of him. 
He has a very distinct look, very intense and penetrating eyes, a massive yarmulke, very large and bushy peos. And he was known to be a great genius. So my grandfather was in his early 20s in yeshiva, and he wanted to go visit this great venerated sage and to spend a Shabbos together with this sage in his yeshiva in Kamenetz. So they took a train, him and his friends, and they arrived in Kamenetz, and they wanted to go visit him. So they found out where he lived, and they went to they knocked on his door. And my grandfather used to always say that he was, he had his back facing the door. And his friend, who he had traveled with, was facing the door. So he didn't see when the door was opened. But he said he remembered what happened to his friend when the door was opened. The great rabbi opened the door. And he had such a striking visage. His look was so stunningly pure and holy that his friend literally staggered back and like kind of just lost his bearings and kind of fell a few feet backwards. And he says that the pictures, they don't tell the full story. There was such an aura to him, such a presence, that it just invariably inspired awe and a fair degree of dread. My grandfather used to also say about that particular Shabbos that he remembers the students in the yeshiva, they told all the visitors that don't approach the great rabbi and wish him a good Shabbos, go shake his hand, wish him a good Shabbos. In the event that you have what's known as Tomas Kerry, which means that you are impure due to a seminal emission. If you are impure to a, due to a seminal emission, don't approach the great rabbi because he could see it. He could see it. When we're talking about awe here as a way to acquire Torah, that means that there's a certain way that you behave when you recognize that you are in the presence of an angel. You're in the presence of someone who's just a, you know, we're the same species, but we're really not. Because they have acquired Torah to such a degree, they have integrated and assimilated Torah within themselves to such a degree that they have been catapulted to this high level. They're now like an angel. You want Torah from them, but when you're in their presence, there's a sense of awe. Now, a cool little story is that in 1928, the aforementioned Rabbi Baruch Ber Leibowitz traveled to America to go fundraise for his yeshiva. If you had a yeshiva in the backwaters of Poland, there's a lot of poverty around, and there's very few people that are wealthy. So it was common for the great rabbis to travel to other places to go fundraise. So this rabbi traveled to New York to fundraise for his yeshiva. And because he was one of the most famous rabbis in all of Europe, 
he had an audience with the mayor of New York, Bo James, Mayor Jimmy Walker. And he presented him the key to the city, the ceremonial key to the city to welcome the great rabbi into the city of New York. And after their meeting, Mayor Jimmy Walker said, this man, this man disproves Darwin. If you meet ordinary men, you could say, well, maybe they came from a monkey. Maybe they descended from an ape. Maybe they emanated from a primate. Maybe. You meet this person, there is a total, um, that, that, that theory gets completely shattered. That theory is untenable with the presence of such a person. I think even today, if you meet great sages, and I have had the great fortune of meeting some great sages, they have an aura to them. What can I say? I remember seeing Rabbi Elyashiv, who passed away at the age of one, 102, I think, 105, in the year 2012. I, I saw him with my own eyes. And he had a glow to him. There's just no way to describe it. His face was luminescent. What can I say? You can, you can probably see some of the pictures. And when you were around him, you, you felt like you were around someone who's just from a different class of people. This is an angel masquerading as a human. There's a certain spiritual gravitas. There's a presence that they have. And just being in their proximity, it makes you take life a little bit more seriously. You know, these people are really, genuinely, with every fiber of their existence, trying to live life properly, trying to understand completely and genuinely the Almighty's Torah. These are people working as hard as humanly possible to understand what we're here for and to understand the Almighty's guidance for life, to understand Torah and every part of Torah. I'll tell you a great story with Rabbi Elyashev. There was a sage who was widely recognized as a great sage who spent 35 years studying with unfathomable depth one of the most obscure, arcane, and esoteric parts of Torah. We know that there are 63 books of Mishnah. That's kind of a sprawling corpus that covers all kinds of subjects. And there are parts of it that are so intricate, so difficult, just to understand even on a basic level. And sometimes sages feel like they have a, a gravitational pull towards those esoterica. And they spend many, many years trying to understand it and trying to formulate it. So this great sage was studying that part or uh, an esoteric part of, of the Torah. And after 35 years, he produced a nice thick book on it. A thick book on this arcane part of Torah. 
And he said, you know what? Before I publish the book, let me go visit Rabbi Elyashev just to talk it over with him. He went to the meeting and he got home depressed. Because he was supposed to be the world's expert on this subject. He had spent decades studying it. The great rabbi that he had come to visit probably hasn't touched it in 20 years. But he had a greater command of this subject than the reportedly or purportedly greatest expert on it. And you're around such a person, again, who lived in our lifetimes, passed away a decade ago. You're in the presence of greatness. And that experience is one that evokes awe. Even my own my own teacher, Rabbi Ariely, still alive today, he gives the largest Talmud lecture in the world, and it's not particularly close. It's thousands of students who listen to him every day. He's the largest lecturer in the largest yeshiva in the world, and he has an immense following. I've talked about him in the past. It's unbelievable. You can meet someone who's such a sage, such a, a genius, razor-sharp intellect, complete command of Torah, gives a lecture, starts off the lecture, speaks for an hour, never, and I was there for years, never loses his train of thought, never forgets what he's going to say, never stumbles on a word, Never. It's unbelievable. It's a sight to behold. Even if you don't understand Yiddish, which is the language of the lecture, you don't understand it just to listen to it and to see how it's just this, this beautiful symphony. An hour every single day. And he's speaking, by the way, to a pack of wolves, to the most capable students in the whole yeshiva. And they would pounce, they would love nothing more than to pounce on some sort of inconsistency or some sort of logical fallacy or some sort of problem with his lecture. They would love to get up and argue with him. And he just quiets them all. He can't say anything. It's just such scintillating logic, such clarity, such structure and order. It's just nothing like it. And you would imagine someone like that the absolute top of their field, respected, adored by all. You would expect someone like that to walk around with some swagger, to say, look at me, I'm the greatest rabbi in the world. Give me some honor. The most humble person you've ever met. The most humble person you've ever met. Stunning, sterling, resplendent character. Resplendent. There's just no words, there's no other words to describe it. In every area of life, absolute, stunning character. And again, this is someone that I know. This is someone I spent a lot of time talking to. I always like to say that the greatest proof for the divinity of the Torah 
is getting a chance to meet someone like this. Someone whose presence just exudes awe. Someone like that, if you ever have the privilege to do that, you know, like Jimmy Walker, that man does not descend from an ape. And you also know that whatever this person has exposed themselves to, has dedicated their lives to, is something that is not like any other field or any other discipline. It comes from God, and it's there to elevate and transform a person. And look, you see an angel in front of you. You see it. You see the handiwork of Torah. And this is one of the ways to get Torah. Awe. Awe of a Torah sage. And of course we know that having a relationship with a Torah sage is paramount. The importance of teachers and tradition and transmission cannot be overstated. We know that the oral Torah, which is actually the way to understand what Hashem wants, that was maintained without being written down and codified, without being canonized in the Mishnah and the Talmud. That's the way it was done for 1,500 years. You had to study under a master. And you had to toil in tutelage of a great sage to understand the Torah precisely, to be able to perpetuate it to the next generation. The way to do that, or one of the necessary components of that, is to have a degree of reverence and awe for your teacher. Your teacher is your link to this great chain of transmission going all the way back to Sinai. In effect, when you study under a teacher, that is a form of a Sinaitic relationship or revelation. Because after all, this sage studied from their respective teacher and they got it from their teacher going all the way back to Moshe at Sinai. And therefore, Awe is part of the experience. Just like the Sinai revelation was done with fire, with awe, with dread, the mountain was shaking, the people were shaking. That is what it's like to study Torah under a sage thenceforth. I would imagine that there's another component of this. When you want to study, when you're studying Torah, not just math or English or science, not any other discipline. You're studying Torah. You have to have a degree of awe for the teacher, for the sage, for the angel. But also, what the Almighty expects of us is not easy. If you look at all of Torah and say, okay, I need to know all of this, that demands Herculean efforts to acquire. There's a lot of hard work that is expected of us. We're going to need to push ourselves to the absolute limits of our abilities. And that's really hard and really taxing and demanding and, and really painful. And pain, of course, is something that we are predisposed to try to avoid. 
how do we overcome that? I think when you realize what the end goal of it is, you see a product that is the result of Torah. You see someone who just became a very different kind of person. When you see how Torah transforms a person from being just ordinary into being like an angel, you begin to crave that for yourself. You see what a human can become. Someone who, again, is part of the same species as you. And look what they became. And you have that awe and that appreciation of what they became. That is going to inspire you to try to seek that for yourself. Torah can make us into a higher person. Someone of refined character, someone of dignity, an elevated soul. And again, of course, a total makeover of our intellect to be razor sharp, to be unbiased in pursuit of truth, and to also have character that is just uncommon. Humility and sweetness and care for others and kindness. And again, I always say that this is the best proof of Torah. Because there are thousands of people that share no overlap with any other discipline. People with immense knowledge and capabilities paired with humility and kindness and sweetness and care for others. Resplendent character, that is part of the package. I think there's a few people in my family that this would, that this would legitimately apply to. It shows us the power of God's Torah to transform a person. And when you're witness to that and you get to see the character of a great Torah sage up close to the degree that you have awe, you begin to aspire to that yourself. And that aspiration will help motivate you to seek it for real, for yourself. So that is way number five with awe, awe of a Torah sage. And if we are so fortunate as to ever witness up close a great Torah sage, we'll know exactly what it means to have awe for a Torah sage. I thank you for listening. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I Hope you will send me your questions, your comments, and your feedback.